and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, happy Easter. I'm glad you're with us this morning. And we're going to be in that passage that, uh, that Ben read uh, for us this morning, Revelation chapter 1. You may be thinking it's Easter, the book of Revelation, for real? John here has this powerful vision of the resurrected Christ. And when he sees Jesus, it strikes fear into his heart. Many of us know and understand fear very well, being afraid. My youngest brother, Jonathan, is notorious for his pranks. I think it was bred into him from his very first days as a little human being to try to torment us, his older siblings, with these pranks. And it only expanded and, and honestly grew a bit more dangerous as he got older. And uh, when he was uh, in his, I believe it was early 20s, he and my other brother Joshua were uh, managers at a movie theater down in Lowell. And uh, one night, they were both working uh, the late shift. They were closing, and you know, as movie theaters are, they, they close very late at night after the last showing. And uh, they were feeling a little bored. It was a little quieter night, and, and boredom with them, the two of them, breeds um, behavior that's suspect. And uh, there was one other young lady, a teenage girl, that was working with them, and they said, hey, why don't we pull a prank on our co-worker here? And they said, well, what's he got? And they, they brought this scheme together. And you have to know that my other brother Joshua, um, through a result of some several poor life choices, most of which involved uh, hockey fights that he could start but not finish very well, uh, had suffered a number of concussions at that point in his life and was uh, prone to random seizures. And so at, at several points throughout the night, my youngest brother, Jonathan, uh, reminded this young lady they were working with that, it, man, Josh had another seizure the other day. Man, I, we just don't know how to put an end to this. And, and they had a conversation about Josh's seizure. So at night, after everybody had left, everything, all the lights were being shut off, and uh, it had been a while since anybody had seen Josh, and so my brother Jonathan, my youngest brother, says to this young, poor teenage girl, would you go up, I, last I remember he was upstairs by the projector room, and uh, would you just go check on him? You know, he's had all those seizures lately, I'm just worried about him. And of course, she goes up there, lights are all out except for one light on the far end of the hallway, and she can see just his leg sticking out from behind one of the projectors. And so she runs over there, screaming his name, and uh, it, it was near Halloween time, and they had managed to find some fake blood. Uh, somehow, I mean, I don't know why 20-year-old guys had Alka-Seltzer on them, but he had put an Alka-Seltzer tablet in his mouth and drank some soda to make it extra fizzy and had blood strewn all over the place. And so she comes around the corner, and he's shaking blood, fake blood, unbeknownst to her, foaming at the mouth. And she absolutely goes berserk. She's terrified. She thinks her coworker is dying before her very eyes. A young teenage girl here. So she runs down and, and is in the process of dialing 911 before my youngest brother realizes that maybe we went just a little bit too far with this young lady. And so it took uh, quite a bit of effort for them to calm down. But my, the problem was my older brother, Joshua, he was ready to ride this thing out. 
And so John's like convinced her to hang up the phone. She, he, they go upstairs. He's like, no, seriously, it's a prank. He's okay. Well, Josh is like still going. And he's like, no, I, I'm sure he's okay, right? Right, Josh, you're fine. And he's still playing this game. And, and so <laughs> the, 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 the prank ended up being on both, uh, both my youngest brother and this poor, terrified young lady. You know, we've probably had moments in our life where we felt out of control, where we felt great fear. Maybe, maybe it was not a, a, um, a misfounded fear as in this situation. Maybe it was a genuine fear where, where life was, was careening out of control. Here as John encounters the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory in this vision on the island of Patmos, we see John truly experiencing fear. Verse 17 in John chapter 1 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He crumpled. He was completely undone. Now remember, John had seen the resurrected Christ before. He was one of the disciples. He has seen Jesus face to face. But something about the, the glorified Jesus in this vision struck terror in John's heart. This is the common response when people have a vision of God in the Bible. When men and women encountered God, this seems to be their natural response. If, uh, if you remember the story of, of Daniel, one of the passages that we often don't touch on is some of his visions later on in the book. And in Daniel chapter 10, we see Daniel responding similarly. He says, uh, only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. And I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me, and my face grew deathly pale. I was powerless. You know, sometimes, my brothers and sisters, we can be caught, we can be found caught in the grip of fear. We find ourselves in a place, much like Daniel, where we're experiencing fears that grip our hearts, fears for our safety and those we love. We have fears about how we'll die, perhaps a progressively debilitating disease or cancer, being alone. Fears about what happens after death, being forgotten. Fears about living a meaningless life. Extensive resumes seem more and more hollow when we look at the end of life. Fears about being loved, unloved or alone. Fears about being in love and the high probability of being hurt. Fears about things you could lose. Your hair, your youth, your mind, your money, your job, your spouse your spouse, your health, your hobbies, your purpose. We haven't even touched on phobias. But if you experience fear, you're in good company. Men and women in the Bible did too. And I want you to see something from this passage as John encounters the resurrected Jesus. We're reminded, first of all, that Jesus is the kind of God who calms our fears. He's the God who meets us in our fear and he calms our fears. I love what, look what Jesus did. John fell at his feet like a dead man, 
And then verse 17 goes on to say, Jesus lays his right hand on John. He says, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. (laughs) Rather than launching into a sermon, rather than jumping right into an exhortation, or even correcting John, he puts his hand on him, first of all. I love that Jesus does that. Over and over and over in the scriptures, Jesus is seen as a God who touches those who are afflicted, those who are hurting, those who are fearful. There's that story, you remember the story of the, the, the man who has leprosy? It's, it's actually one of the fewer stories that's taught in all three of the synoptic gospels. And this man came to Jesus and he begged Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Imagine having a disease or a sickness where no one wants to come near you. No one wants to be in your presence. In fact, you are, you are by law cast out of the proximity of God's people. You can't be near anyone. Not only are you sick, but you're sick and alone. No one will come close to you. But it says that Jesus was moved with compassion and he reached out his hand and touched him. I want you to know this morning that we worship a God who comes near to those who are hurting, who are sick, who are wounded. And he puts his hand on us to calm our fears, to calm our doubts, to calm our worries. That's the kind of God we worship. A God who never recoils at our sin or our current state. He's never astounded and surprised at our lack of faith and our weakness. He meets us right where we are. Jesus lays his hand on John. And it says, secondly, that he reassured John. He says, you don't have to be afraid. And what he's going to do here is he's going to remind him of truth. You don't have to be afraid, John. When we are in the midst of fear, when we have doubts, when we have worries... We have to be reminded of truth too, don't we? When your child comes to you in the middle of the night and arouses you from your slumber and he or she is in tears, maybe there's a storm outside, maybe they're fearful of what's in the closet or what's under the bed, and you take them and and you show them, look, you turn the light on, there's nothing here. You get a flashlight and look under the bed, nothing there. Again, unless you're my brother and you want to play a prank and terrorize your child forever. I'm assuming most of you aren't like that. You reassure them that the storm is not going to harm them, that you're right there. You know, when we struggle with our fears, God does the same thing. He reminds us of truth. He reminds us of what his word, what he said about himself in his word. He brings John here back to the truth. John, you don't have to be afraid. He's not just, just, just giving him false assurance or giving him empty platitudes. He brings him back to himself and he says, this, this is what I've said about me. This is what you know to be true about me. Believe the truth. The second thing he reminds him of is that he's the first and the last. He's the first and the last. Now listen to this. He says, don't be afraid. I am 
the first and the last. Does anybody remember the significance of that phrase, I am? You remember? Do you remember Exodus chapter 3 when God comes to Moses? Moses, who's terrified about what he's going to do and how he's going to get these people out of Egypt and how he's going to rescue his people. And God appears to him in this burning bush. And, and, and Moses says, well, after some interchange, and Moses, I don't know if he's, I think maybe he's a little bit more terrified than he was at the beginning. And, and he says, who should, I, who should I tell them is sending me? And how does God reveal himself in that moment? He says, tell them the I am is sending you. And then all those years later, as Jesus is in the garden and he's being arrested by the Roman soldiers, and they, they come and they want to verify that it's truly him. And in John 18, the same author who's penning this vision in the book of Revelation, he tells us that Judas brings the company of soldiers and some of the officials and from the chief, pre chief priests and the Pharisees, and they all came with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons. And it says, Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. And here's his response. I am. I am he. And it says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Why would Roman soldiers who knew nothing about this man that they're arresting fall to the ground when he says, I am. It's that same Greek phrase that Jesus uses here in John chapter 1. A revelation of who he is as God, the Almighty One, the One who always has been and always will be. It's a phrase of, of power. It's a phrase of Jesus' eternality. It's a phrase of his deity, but it's a phrase that reminds us that he's bigger than whatever we're in the middle of. Moses, as he stood before that burning bush, needed to know as he was about to go into this God-sized task and confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man in that section of the world. As he's about to confront Pharaoh and say, I want all your slaves, I want all of your slave labor, we're going he needed to know that there was a God who was going to stand behind him and back up such a bold, audacious move. When we're in the midst of our fears, we need to know that we have a God who is bigger than our fears. And John encountered that God. And he says, I am the first and I am the last. This, this phrase occurs several times in Revelation. It, it, it harkens back to Isaiah. Isaiah used this a number of times, and it ties in with the other title of God, the Alpha and the Omega. If you look back at verse 8, God introduced himself in that way. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who was, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. What began as a title in the book of Isaiah comes to, to set God apart from the other idols, the other false god. Here, 
brings, brings John to a place where he understands the identity of the one true God. He's the God who reigns over all of human history. He's the God who always has been and he always will be. There was never a time when he was not, and there's never a time when he will cease to exist. In the middle of our fears, in the middle of our doubts and our worries, we need to remember that there's a God who was here long before whatever trouble entered into our life, and he will be here long after. He's a God who will see us all the way through whatever afflicts us, whatever troubles arise. This text also reminds us that Jesus is the living one. He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then verse 18 says, I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Jesus is the living one. He is the one who was dead for a time, but is alive for all time. Jesus was dead and in the grave for three days. And his disciples mourned. His followers fretted. And they were overcome with fear and doubt and worry. But his resurrection changed that. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead infused them with hope. There's a lot of things in this world that don't last. How many of us have bought our, our children a toy for Christmas? Maybe something that cost a, a fair bit of money. And it didn't even make it through the day. That's so discouraging as a parent. You're all excited about this. They're all excited about it. And the thing is destroyed within a, a few hours. My kids sometimes will build Lego creations. And it seems like throughout the years there's always been... Uh, another sibling who loves to just come along and just smash the thing to smithereens before they even get the thing completed, or just after they get it completed. It ends up being an all-out war. What is it about that, especially with boys? It's like, you are, you are happy, you're enjoying this work of your hands, I shall destroy all that brings you joy. I don't, it's like, just built within boys, I think, to just for no good reason. There's a lot of things in this world that don't last, our toys, our cars, uh, unfortunately, uh, our, um, even, even friendships and relationships, uh, this, this world is falling apart and the things therein. But one thing that we can be sure of is that Jesus will always be alive. He will never die again. I love what Doug Kelly says when he says the resurrection of Jesus exercises a never-ceasing and life-giving influence over our entire faith and over the whole of our lives. Jesus' resurrection, his aliveness runs parallel to everything that we do. It's like as you're driving down a highway... And you, as you drive along, you see on either side of you a, a, a painted line. On your right side, for example, is that, that yellow line that runs parallel. And no matter how fast you go or how slow you go, that line is always running parallel to you. I mean, you know, pardon any, any accidents or whatever. 
That, that, that line is always there. That, that's, that's what Jesus' resurrection is. No matter what we're going through, the alive Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is always running parallel. His victory over, the, over death, it never wanes. It never ceases to be, like it, it's never at any point is it, is it less powerful, less true. His aliveness, his victory over death is just as true and vibrant as it was that very first Easter morning. As people were screaming, his joy, running with gladness in their hearts to tell the good news. Jesus is just as alive today as he was that very first resurrection morning. I love what the old Puritan Thomas Boston says in his sermon. He said, in the resurrection of Christ, God exercised a power and he quenched the flames of his own wrath that was hotter than a million of Nebuchadnezzar's furnaces. He unlocked the prison doors wherein the curses of the law had lodged our Savior, stronger than the belly and ribs of a Leviathan. How admirable it was that he should be raised from under the curse of the law and the infinite weight of our sins and brought forth with success and glory after his sharp encounter with the powers of hell. In this, the power of God was gloriously manifested. Hence, he is said to be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, by his glorious power, and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. We serve a Jesus, we serve a Savior who is alive forever and ever. That is our hope and that is our joy this morning. But finally, this passage reminds us that Jesus holds the keys. Jesus holds the keys. Look at how verse 18 finishes. He says, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades there give us the picture of the afterlife. Death and Hades are regularly brought together in the book of Revelation. In the New Testament, Hades is reference to the place, the realm of the dead. And death and Hades together refer to the same ent- entity. Jesus says, I have power over that. In those days, the Greeks told stories of heroes like Orpheus, who sought to bring his deceased wife from Hades, but failed. And of uh, Heracles, who succeeded in bringing up some people, but not everyone. But none of these heroes held power, held the power to restore the dead in general. Parables and stories that swirled around attributed some power, but not complete power. Attributed some dominion to these gods, but not complete dominion. Others, like kings and emperors, and in this case, Pilate, were able to exercise the power of the state and could have people executed at their will. But even these powerful rulers who could snuff out life had no power to give it back. That power belongs to Jesus alone. And in Jewish thought, keys are a symbol of authority. It's a little bit like that in in our culture, true, too, when it's a big day when you get your driver's license and if you get your first car and all of a sudden you've, you've got keys now. And 
he's bring that sense of power that like I can go wherever I want to go, right? Right? And uh, I can take off and drive somewhere whenever I want because gas is so cheap right now and I have unlimited resources as a teenager. And Even in our culture, the, the, the keys are a symbol of some authority, but it's, it's still not a, a genuine, true, unbridled authority. But for Jesus, holding the keys to death in Hades mean everything. You see, I don't know what it is this morning that you may struggle with when it comes to fear and to doubt and to worry. I, I think every single one of us has fears in some area or some realm. Whether it's our health, whether it's our kids, whether it's our financial future, whether it's people's opinion of us, we struggle with fear. And when we encounter God, He reminds us of the truths of His Word. And He reminds us what, what Jesus did when He rose from the dead and He conquered death and the grave. You see, we have a lot of uncertainties about the future, or none of us knows what tomorrow will bring, and none of us know when we will breathe our last. If history and life experience has taught us anything, though, our final breath is certain. No matter how healthy you are right, no, not right now, no matter how, life, how great life is for you, if you're young and vibrant and you've got no aches and pains, or every single move you make comes with the grinding of bones and the ache of arthritis, no matter where you are on that spectrum, you and I have to realize that, that th there is a final day when we will breathe our last. But even here, John reminds us that we don't have to fear. Because it's Jesus, it's Jesus who holds the keys to death in Hades. You see, he came to die on the cross so that we didn't have to be bound by fear anymore. He said, I came to set the captives free. I've come to give you life and life abundant. I've come to give you hope. And it's through his death on the cross for our sins and through his resurrection that we can experience that saving life and the hope, the promise that death is not the end. Once again, Thomas Boston once preached this, and I love this line. He said, though Satan be the jailer of hell, yet he keeps not the keys. They hang, believer, at the girdle of your best friend. I don't know where you are this morning and what may or may not give you pause, what may or may not keep you awake at night. But I want you to know that you have a Savior who comes near and longs to lay his hand upon you and to comfort you in your fears and to point you not to how awesome you are, point you not to your accomplishments. Look how well you did last time you were afraid. You can do this again. But what he does is he points you and I to himself. And he says, look, I've conquered death. What, what more is there to conquer? 
I'm victorious over the grave. What, what more is there to fear? And I want you to know today that he offers that same freedom and that same hope to every single one of you here. And if you're here today and I, you've never known Jesus in this powerful and personal way, there'll be a few of us up front who would love to pray with you and talk with you afterwards. I pray that this Easter would be more than a, a chance to come and celebrate with family or, or go out for a wonderful meal afterwards, but this Easter would be a time where you get to experience and meet the resurrected and powerful Christ face to face. I love what one writer said. He said, you notice in Scripture that when, when people meet God, unbelievers fall away like those soldiers did. But his people fall towards him and at his feet. John did not fall away as someone who was terrified of God, but was someone who was humbled and in awe and felt his sense in desperate need of Jesus. And whether you're here this morning as an unbeliever or you're here as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, I know one thing about each and every one of us, that we all need Jesus this morning. And not just an idea of Jesus, not just some uh, a picture, a caricature of Jesus, but we need the resurrected Jesus who has defeated death in the grave and who has victoriously emerged with the keys. This morning, you and I can rest in Jesus the one who has delivered us from all of our fears. We can cling to Jesus, the one who is there in the midst of our doubts and worries. May we do so this Easter day. If you'd like to, uh, after we pray, if, if you'd like prayer or like to just spend some time in, in quiet worship up front here, you're welcome to come forward for, for any reason. We'd love to talk to you or just give you that, that quiet time to spend with God. We're going to pray now. And I I just, um, my prayer is that, that God continues to encourage you this Easter day, continues to bless your hearts. We want to invite you too that uh, after we pray, um, we're going to have uh, a light Easter breakfast out there waiting for you. We'd love for you to stay around, mingle, grab a cup of coffee, and maybe meet someone new today. We praise God that we serve a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we worship and serve a risen Savior. One who has come to set us free. One who meets us in the midst of our fears and doubts and worries. One who is alive forever and ever. What a joy to know that our Savior lives. He's the living one. The one who will never die again. God, may our Savior infuse that hope into our hearts. Give us everlasting joy. And set us free from fear and doubt. We love you, God. 
Thank you for saving all those who have trusted in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Now a dying Savior's love, a risen Savior's joy, and an ascended Savior's power, and a returning Savior's hope rest upon your hearts and your homes this week. Amen. May God bless you.